Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and today is going to be uh, a great day. Patrick's going to join me in just a minute to get the show started, and then Kim Katola is going to come on the program. She's going to give us the some of the pro-life news that's happening uh, in the world today, and there's plenty of it. And then in the second hour, Janita Pace is going to be here in studio. She's written a book called The Healing Names of Jesus. I'm looking forward to spending time and meeting her. That's what we've got today so far. Patrick is my friend and colleague from the great state of Iowa. Always glad to get my day and my week started with him. Patrick, welcome. Hey, hey, well, hello, Bill. It's May 9th. Is it May 9th? It is May 9th. Why, why do you bring up May 9th? Well, you know, because there is a day of every year in Iowa, uh, usually falls around this time, but it's not a specific day. But there's a day that you start with the heat on and end <laughs> with the air conditioning running. <laughs> and today was that day. I know those days. Yes, today is the day where you wake up in the morning and say, ooh, it's chilly, put on the heat. <laughs> a couple hours later, you say, turn on the air conditioner. <laughs> and it's pushing 90, isn't it, to there today? We have uh, successfully pushed past 90. I think we got about 92. So, oh, wow. uh, But it's, 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 it's been glorious because, uh, um, you know, my son, who's been getting into uh, astronomy, Ever since he broke his wrist, uh, you know, all the planets have been wanting to come out at about 5 o'clock in the morning when it's been 28 degrees. And Dad, Dad's skin is getting a little thin as he gets a little older. <laughs> <laughs> so I welcome the heat. Yeah, you know, there's usually good stories associated with some misfortune. You know, you, you break a wrist, you have time for something else. You have something that goes on in your life. I'd almost like to ask... Listeners, my listeners, if you had a similar experience where you had an injury or something that happened to you when you were younger, but it provided this opportunity for you to uh, learn to do something, to get interested in something, because I I have a lot of friends now that tell stories of uh, them having something go on in their life that appeared very tragic at the time, and it was, uh, but they came out of it with something pretty spectacular. You know, it's it's funny you should bring that up. I, I I'm I've always remarked at my ability, and, and maybe uh, I think everybody has the skill of storytelling, of writing stories. You know, you you watch movies and you say, I wish I could write a story like that. But then you you know, one day you're driving along in your car, and you know, let's just say that somebody honks at you for <laughs> no reason, mm-hmm. and uh, within about thirty seconds, you've written a complete story of your encounter with that person. That usually ends up with you finding the uh, the briefcase with the nuclear codes in the trunk of her vehicle. Right. And it wouldn't have happened if that person hadn't honked at you and you hadn't been brave enough, of course, because you're always the hero of your own story. Yeah. You weren't brave enough to confront them for that uh, uh, uncalled for honking, and now you've saved the world. Uh, so, of course, as my son started to find some new hobbies with the broken wrist, uh, Dad was very... <laughs> I was very prolific 
and extrapolating that to, you know, when he becomes a scientist that discovers <laughs> that, you know, inside the core of Saturn is actually another mini Earth planet where we could resettle. I'll be like, it all goes back to the day he slipped in the mud. It all goes back. Right, right. He well, slipped in the mud, and now we have a new home. Well, isn't it a matter of seconds quite often, the difference between an accident that's uh, very difficult and challenging and one that you survive? I mean, you and your son witnessed a car accident that had you been there a second or two earlier, you might have been involved or the person would have been involved in something very uh, tragic. Yeah, we, we walked to the corner church yesterday. He's gotten into throwing some styrofoam airplanes. And, of course... Uh, I'm getting a little tired of this particular hobby, but <laughs> so we're in the parking lot and we hear a screech and, and what sounds like an explosion. And we just walk out to the front of the church and uh, you can see that somebody has run a red light and one car T-boned another one, a truck in the front. And you realize that had the car, the, the truck was the one that ran the red light. Had the car been, uh, you know, about two seconds, one to two seconds later, uh, or the truck one to two seconds earlier, the T-bone would have happened the other way. And there were the, the, the little SUV that got hit uh, had six passengers, I think, in it that we saw out on the sidewalk. And I, I, th- I thought to myself, two of those people at least would pro- might be dead because they probably got hit at 50 miles an hour. Yeah. And by virtue of the fact that they were just a second or two later, they ended up, their front end of their car was gone, but they T-boned a truck. And, uh, but it, you know, the the passenger compartment of the truck was completely safe. And it just, it kind of struck both my son and I, you know, we, I know we remark about how fragile life is, but you think that's split second. That is one second difference between all the people in the, S, the little SUV getting out and just sitting on the sidewalk with, without a scratch, really. Right. Uh, or something much more uh, dire. So, yeah, a second. And then you think at times when you've had a difficult day and you, you never ponder to think what God might have protected you from that day, which could have made your day very different. Yes. I mean, I remember exploring this because uh, way back when 9-11 happened, and this is when I was first beginning my faith journey, as you may recall. I do remember that. And, uh, of course, you know, people were crying to the skies or crying to the heavens. Why didn't God stop this? And I, and I remember asking, I didn't ask you that question because I, I, I don't like to ask questions like that. Um, you know, I, I don't want to assume that I know better than God anything. But I remember saying to you about that, uh, you know, what do you say to these people? And, and, and I remember you were, you were very calm about it. You said, you have no idea how many times God has stepped in. Absolutely no idea. And he doesn't really step forward to take a bow and say, thank you very much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you are, I mean, you're welcome very much. Uh, we don't know. Yeah. We have so. Yeah. A question that uh, author John Piper asks, and I found this question very intriguing. He says, do you feel more loved by God when he makes much of you or when he, at great cost to his son, frees you to enjoy making much of him forever? Oh, boy. Isn't that a big question? That's a bit of a tongue twister. Wow. It is a little bit. I'll probably read it again because it's worth it. Do you feel more loved by God when he makes much of you or when he, at great cost to his son, frees you to enjoy making much of him forever? 
Oh my, that's that is a tough one to get to. Uh, you're gonna you're gonna um, you know kind of fire up the part of my brain that says, you know, do I want to give up complete control here? <laughs> <laughs> well, let me let me read a little bit more because I I drew some some out of this article that I thought would be good to discuss. Um, he said millions of nominal Christians have never experienced a fundamental change in the foundations of their happiness. They haven't experienced it. They go to church for other reasons. Instead, they've absorbed the notion that becoming a Christian means turning to Jesus to get what you always wanted before you were born again. No change in what you want, no change in the bottom, the foundation of what thrills you. Just get it from a new place. The baggage in the hotel room is the same. They just got a different bellhop. The meal stays the same. They just got a different butler. And they think they're Christian. And they feel really loved because he's producing. My life is going better. Yeah. Yeah. So, That's, he, uh, it, it's, it, in other words, it's almost like, will this help me get what I want without having to give up what I like, of course. Right. I don't want to give up what I like. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, I sometimes have to ponder that question because my pastor will occasionally ask that. He says, are you here in church for you? Or you're, are you here in church to see what God wants from you, what God wants you to do? What is it? What, I mean, are you here just to, to try and get from God? Mm-hmm. Or are you trying, are you here to ask God, what do you need me for? Mm-hmm. And it's tough to, you know, because I know we've talked about this before. You say, oh, I, I, I just, I just hope you don't, don't send me to a place I don't want to go. <laughs> right. And I know you've cleared that one up for me in the past, because it is true that your heart will know. I mean, it's like you'll you'll just know if something's right. You will you'll feel a call to something that's right. Um, and I, I just remember as I evolved my beliefs on you know certain things in life, even the you know like the the yeah, you're talking to somebody about where we are on the abortion issue, and it's amazing how you say well. I didn't, you know, people will say that's a religious issue. And you say, I guess it's definitely something that religious people believe in. But sometimes somebody can say, in my, inside of me, I know right from wrong on this. Mm-hmm. You know, I could definitely say, yes, I get my beliefs from the Bible, but there was also something that changed inside of me that said, oh, no, I think I, I have a, a, a different take on things. I mean, it happened in many areas of my life, and it, it just happened. It's as you often say, it's the Holy Spirit doing a little bit of work inside of you, and you wake up one day and say, "I'm in a different place." Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah, and John Piper's article goes on to say that the new birth is not having all the same desires that you had as an unregenerate person, and then getting them from a new source. That's not the new birth. The new birth changes the bottom. It changes the root. It changes the foundation of what makes us happy. Self at the bottom is replaced by Jesus. Treasuring being made much of at the bottom is replaced by treasuring Jesus. Everything changes. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you you listen for the way people talk, the way people uh, pray, the way people speak to each other. Um, are they are they excited about the gifts? that they have from God or are they more excited about the giver himself? Um, do you, do, do they long for people they love to, to see him, admire him, glorify him, live in him? 
or do they, you know, want to be the center of attention? It's what's at the bottom and what is, what's going to make us happy. And for me, you trade self for Jesus and that's at the root, at the bottom, at the foundation. You can come out of that being happy. Uh, yeah, that's beautiful. I, I, you know, it's funny as you, as you were you know, telling me this, I, I was reminded of, and this doesn't happen to me often, a Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Now, don't go thinking I read this kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, occasionally somebody will just, you know, pull, do a pull quote, and you'll say, that one sentence means a lot to me. So I'll, I'm, I shall read to you. If, if you, if you Yeah, wish. but after the break, because I'm up against a break. So you're going to have to hold that thought. You and Dietrich are going to have to... Just sit for about 90 seconds. We'll be right back with Patrick Albanese, my friend and colleague from the great state of Iowa, the prestigious town of West Des Moines. Be right back. What would you do with a brain if you had one? Do? Why, if I had a brain, I could... I could while away the hours, conferring with the flowers, consulting with the rain. And my head, I'd be scratching while my thoughts were busy hatching if I only had a brain. Welcome back to the show. If you just joined me, Patrick Albanese is my guest to start the day. I was thinking of seizing his yachts and luxury homes and his ill-begotten gains, but I realized he doesn't have any. So, Patrick... uh... No, no, no. I have achieved all of those legitimately. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. You and Dietrich got some, something to share. You and Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I'm, I'm impressed. Right now, Marlena Dietrich, the famous actress. No, I course. know. I know you're, you're dropping names on me. So, let, so wait, wait. If, he would, if, 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 if men had taken on a woman's last name and they had married, he would have been Dietrich Dietrich. That's true. Which I think, yeah. Which, and he sang in the famous band Duran Duran. Or is it Mr. Mr.? I don't uh, know. I don't know. Anyway, uh, let's get back to the good stuff. Yeah, well, now I have to find it, you see, yeah. because you know, we, we had a break, and, you know, I go get a bite to eat. Uh, okay, so here's uh, our, our friend Dietrich Bonhoeffer. People think you're kidding, but you're not. <laughs> I know you well enough to know you probably did go get something to eat. <laughs> I have insatiable appetite. All right, let's get back to Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich, yes, back to Dietrich Bonhoeffer. This may be the only time, by the way, that you and I quote Dietrich Bonhoeffer because he's very, he's a deep thinker. Uh, In life, we hardly realize how much more we receive than we give. True. And life cannot be rich without such gratitude. It is so easy to overestimate the importance of our own achievements compared with what we owe to the help of others. And of course, God. Mm. And it's... You know, we often talk about, you know, that that difficult Bible passage about easier for, you know, a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. By the way, the way my eyes are right now, I need a needle that's big enough to get a camel through it. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot thread a needle. But uh, you, you start to understand that sometimes people get so full of their accomplishments that they do forget. Where did it all come from? You know? Yeah. Yeah. You know? Why, where, where did it, where did this all come from? Oh, and they start to believe I did it all by myself. I had no help. Mm, no, that's not right. Anyway, we're talking to not only Patrick Albanese, and he's quoting Dietrich Bonhoeffer today, which is confusing me a little bit. But I'm yeah. <laughs> I'm prompting a question by author John Piper, and the question is: yeah. Do you feel more loved by God when He makes much of you, or when He? at great cost to his son, frees you to enjoy making much of him forever. 
And I think uh, the point he's trying to get at is the aim of the question was never and is not now to deny that God makes much of us. Uh, He does, um, but the aim was to help people relocate the bottom, the deepest foundation of their joy from self to God. Hmm. Wait, what's with this heavy thinking that you're doing here? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. I just got a nice comment from a listener. He said, not the normal Monday bantering, but some real insight questions are being asked back and forth. I really enjoy this. Yes, he is. He's not completely predictable. So, yeah. Are are you talking about me? No, I'm talking about God. You're you're completely predictable. (laughs) I don't know. I kind of threw you with the Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You did. I didn't see that coming. I'm blindsided by that. No, no. You're used to me quoting Carl uh, Hofer, who was my next door neighbor. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's uh, those are that's as, as deep as I used to get. But every now and then, I may surprise you. It is true how everything changes. That is, uh, well, you know, part of getting older, and supposedly this is, you know, one of the benefits of getting older as you trade away some of your youthful health, <laughs> 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 zest yeah. for life, and all the other things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is that you have uh, have wisdom, not just from Dietrich uh, or or Reverend Piper, Pastor Piper, Pastor Piper. Yeah, Pastor Pastor Reverend mm-hmm. Pastor Doctor, Reverend Piper. Doctor yes. John Piper. Fa- mm-hmm. Doctor Doctor Father Reverend Pastor Piper. <laughs> <laughs> I do like Piper, and uh, but uh, that you know you can at least appreciate those things because we might not have stopped to listen to this stuff back in our our youthful days of ignorance. And, uh, you know, staying up 23 hours in a row. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, it, it, it's, it is nice when you see how things change because there's something that, t- that tickles not just the brain, but that your understanding of God when, when you, as, you, as you're getting to know him and you have so many more of these aha moments, which are so much better than those uh-oh moments. Right, you know? right. Yeah. But the new birth, yeah. the, the regeneration of us by the Holy Spirit should change and it does the foundation of what makes us happy and if the, if if self is at the bottom and it's replaced by Jesus uh, we are going to treasure Jesus and our bottom is going to be different and then everything changes and if we still mm-hmm. have the same desires and wishes and dreams and goals we had prior to coming to faith we've done no, no reordering of our loves it is uh, does make me wonder how much you are surrendering your life to Christ? Who? Yeah, I mean, this That's, is this is deep stuff. I mean, if your head's going to explode, I can let you go early. No, no, no. I've got headphones on, and I put an elastic band around. I should be able to keep the con- <laughs> contents intact. No, it's it is great, and, and but and when you talk about desires changing, you know, of course, we, there's a time in your life when you say, well. Uh, you know, you've had to readjust this one, you know, for some reason, people get this idea in their head. I want to be a millionaire by age 30. And then uh, as they hit 29 and they realize that, that they're not going to make it, they say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to adjust that goal a little bit. Let's make that billionaire by 30. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I remember a, a friend challenging me in my early twenties when I would say things like that. And he would say, well, that's great. What do you want all that money for? You just give me a list of some of the things you'd like to do when you have all this wealth. And by the time I finished the list, he said, I count $50,000 pretty much how to cover everything you need. 
why are you, why is this your pursuit? Mm-hmm. Why don't you, why don't you pursue something else? Maybe a deeper understanding of things. And, and he was one of the early mentors I had that was, you know, kind of nudging me to the path that I eventually did take. Um, trying to, to get to know God better, you know, and, and you also understand more about seeking first the kingdom of heaven. You say, right. wait a second, all of these things are just things. Uh, so, you know, did my desire to, you know, have 14 homes change? <laughs> it's so yes. silly. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. Well, partly because I just don't like shopping that much and having to fill 14 homes with furniture would be pretty tough. Yeah. But no, no, it just said, it didn't become, it became unimportant to me. Mm-hmm. But if you have those things, you know, good for you. Yeah. I think it's fantastic. And of course, you and I both like Steve Martin and you know his definition of how to become a millionaire. Oh, of course. <laughs> First, get a million dollars. <laughs> it's, a, it's a simple, you know, we do like things. I remember uh, many years ago when I wanted to, uh, you know, learn to speak Japanese, I, I saw all the books on the shelf. And then, of course, which is the one I bought? Learn to speak Japanese in a week. Okay. <laughs> I kid you not, seven days. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, you know, look at all these other ones. And it was, here's the amazing thing. It was a very thin book which I thought, this is very appealing to me. This is exactly what I want to be true, mm-hmm. that I could learn to speak an incredibly difficult language <laughs> in a mere seven days with a book that fits in my back pocket. Mm. Uh, but that wasn't the truth. Yeah, never is. There's no shortcuts. No. There's no shortcuts. There's no. no yeah. As you know, I always say shortcuts usually lead to dead ends. That's so true. It's That's so true. an albinism for you. I yeah. like that. I like albinisms. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, we've only got a couple minutes left, and I've enjoyed this topic today. Um, yeah. But I also want to ask you: Did your did your kids go out and find Mother's Day cards for your wife? We, and their I mother, by the way. A, yes, uh, I might have gone a little late. You know, as you know, I uh, I had my uh, semi annual meeting of the men's club uh, Valentine's morning and Mother's Day morning <laughs> in the card aisle at. The grocery store. I kid you not. I know. There they all. There they all are. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty slim pickings. It's it's you know, the the kind of cards that were left is like, hey, you're all right. You're not. You're not bad. You know. You know. It's it's almost like you remember Curly from the Three Stooges. Hey, your mother and my mother were both mothers. It was. <laughs> <laughs> those were the type of Mother's Day cards. Huh. Now, I, by the way, I do have a cute little joke uh, from the kids. But maybe, you know, this is one of those, it's a dad joke. Okay. It's about a Spanish magician who said that I will, uh, I will disappear on the count of three. He says, uno, dos, poof, he was gone. He disappeared without a trace. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to pretend that. Oh, no. Yeah. You didn't hear it. I'm going to pretend pretend I didn't hear it. it. Yeah, but it was good. That's a cute joke. That's (laughs) That's a a a dad joke. joke. Yeah. That's a dad joke. Yeah. I have to, somebody has to do the dad jokes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Patrick, thanks for the deep thinking today. It was fun. Have a great week. Yes. Thanks, you too. All right. We'll take a short break, and then when we come back, Kim Cattola is going to join me, and we're going to talk about uh, some of the news that's going on with uh, the abortion issue. That's all coming up in just a couple minutes.
So glad to have Kim Katola back on the program. She's the author of Cradle My Heart, Finding God's Love After Abortion. She also hosts Cradle My Heart Radio on uh, Faith Talk 1360 in Phoenix. You can get that on Spotify and iTunes as well. Kim, welcome. Hey, Bill. How are you? I'm good. How's your day been going? Ours has been crazy. Uh, yeah, there's a lot going on in the world, isn't there? Yeah, and I've got your um, Twitter feed open, and uh, you do a great job, and there are a number of things I want to chat with you about, so are you ready? Yes, I think I am. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, survey of churches, 19% heard at least one sermon that mentioned abortion. Are we doing enough talking about it from the pulpit? Oh, man. I think, so this is where my focus is these days, Bill, is on equipping and encouraging faith leaders, mm-hmm. pastors, and, and other church leaders to get in the mix, because we're not. So this is from the Pew Research Center, and it's pretty fresh research. It came out at the end of April. And uh, I'm sorry, it it came out at the end of April in 2020, but it's still pretty fresh. So the headline summary of the of the survey was that few U.S. sermons mention abortion, although discussion varies by religious affiliation and congregation size. But they took a look at, I think, 50,000 sermons that churches posted online um, from 6,000 churches, and they found 19% mentioned abortion during this eight-week survey, which means 81% did not. And the question for me then is, well, Pastor, where is your church getting their information? Where, where are they grounding themselves in a biblical view mm-hmm. about, you know, what has now become one of the most pressing issues politically as well as in every other way in our country? It has been morally the most pressing issue. But I think it's, um, you know, as I've been working on it, Bill, I know that there are a lot of reasons why pastors don't. Um, and so I'm not here to condemn anybody, but just rather to equip and encourage pastors. People want to hear what God's Word has to say about this. I remember before the 2016 election, it was like the top issue people wanted sermons about. They mm-hmm. wanted it preached. Like 91% of people said they wanted to know God's view about abortion. And Bill, if you're on social media and you are taking a pro-life position, they're going to come for you. They're going to come for you with the Bible silent on abortion. You know, they're going to come for you. Oh, give me the proof verse that, that God prohibits abortion or that life begins at conception and not after birth sometime. And if you are flat-footed and you cannot answer from a biblical worldview, you know, lives are at risk because mm-hmm. that person's carrying that attitude to their circle and who knows when a woman in need is going to come across them and be told it's not a problem, even from a Christian point of view. Mm-hmm. Kim, we've, we've been bombarded with news in the last uh, week in particular since the uh, leak has uh, the draft to the uh, Supreme Court got leaked. What have you uh, learned? What have you uh, in particular remembered from some of the discussions and news reports that have come out? Well, I, there's, there's the typical. So here's what abortion does. Abortion exploits women in their ignorance as well as their fear and desperation. Uh, now, some women uh, would tell you that that's very presumptuous and insulting for me to say that. But if you look at who has abortions and what their mindset is going into it, I'll stand by my statement. So 
I mean, there may be some women who are all about it, but it's just not the majority of women who end up having abortions. And so, you know, this, this is this. I mean, it's such a gridlocked issue, Bill. But the fact that Roe v. Wade may be overturned, first of all, it doesn't mean abortion is going to end. We're going to have more work to do as supporters of women to carry their pregnancies forward and to parent at a place for adoption. There'll be more work to do if, you know, abortion is prohibited or restricted. But it'll still it'll still be legal in many states. There are many states that, you know, have already made provision, just as there are many states that have already made provision for it to be banned in their states if abortion is over, if Roe v. Wade is overturned. So the battle's not nowhere near over. We don't get to rest <laughs> mm-hmm. as people who stand for life at every phase. Uh, we have to we have to be ready, and we have to be we have to be ready in a way that's persuasive, and that is you know pro woman, pro child, pro family, and most of all pro Bible, pro God's word, and and pro you know in favor of helping women make a godly choice. So Kim, when um... When you hear about the, the Roe v. Wade possibly being overturned, I, I think there's enough information that's come out that lead people to think that, A, it's always been a constitutional right, and B, it's going to be banned and outlawed everywhere. And that's not true. So maybe you can walk us through what it's going to look like if Roe v. Wade does get overturned. Right. Neither of those is true. I know. And there's, another, there's another talking point that's out there right now, Bill, that we can talk about. Uh, maybe a little bit later on, but it's, you know, that, well, when abortion was legalized, uh, evangelicals were neutral. You know, Christianity Today said they didn't take a position on it, and Billy Graham was, you know, and you're, you're going to hear these talking points if you haven't already. And so you're right. What, what do we say to this? You know, so in the first case, no, abortion isn't a constitutional right. There was a decision made based on a case that was brought by Norma McCorvey, also known as Jane Roe. And Wade was the, I believe, the attorney general of the state of Texas. And so Roe v. Wade was brought to the Supreme Court as, you know, a a way to allow for abortions. Uh, it It was legal in the state of New York. It was legal in a few states, but I think at least 30 states banned abortion. In the early 1970s. So don't let anybody tell you, oh, it was just neutral. And now evangelicals are just trying to impose religion. No, it was illegal in many, 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 many states. And because it was legal in some states, Roe v. Wade wanted a federal policy and the Supreme Court accommodated them with their ruling. But everyone who has been opposed to Roe v. Wade, not to say even opposed to abortion, has always said, let this be decided by the voters of individual states, you know, because we don't have a federal referendum, right? Uh, but if you are in favor of abortion, then you can vote for it mm-hmm. when, when your state brings it forward as, a, as legislation. But that has never, voters have never had the chance to do that. And so there was no constitutional right. The justices found that there was a right to privacy, which also um, doesn't exist in our Constitution. And um, so it's not as though we're removing a constitutional right. I mean, if anything, in Justice Alito's opinion, which has been leaked, 
he says, you know, the Constitution is very clear that unless something is specifically mentioned, it is a matter that goes to the states. And the things specifically mentioned include freedom of religion, freedom of speech, you know, uh, freedom to assemble, and the things that are outlined in the Constitution. And so it should never have been. It was unconstitutional from the start, and it should never have been. The ruling should never have gone in the way that it did. And then when they had to justify it, they came up with arbitrary reasons. You know, they had to resolve, well, if you're going to grant this right to women, how do you possibly deal with the rights of the other person involved in every pregnancy, the fetus, the Mm -hmm. baby, the prenatal child? This is the way I'm beginning to talk about it, Bill. Mm -hmm. It's a prenatal child. Um, And so they came up with this viability and, well, once a baby could live outside his or her mother's womb, then that baby has rights. But, I mean, there are states, there are seven states allow abortion through all nine months of pregnancy. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's a huge gaping loophole that states walk through right now Mm -hmm. based on the way that Roe v. Wade is written. So, I mean, I understand that people who have been able to do something want to be able to continue to do something. However, the question before the court is, was this an unconstitutional ruling? And it appears from the reports of the draft leak that, yes, it was unconstitutional and it should be overturned. And with legal minds like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who said, I'm in favor of a woman's right to choose, but this was poorly written um, uh, legal and it was legally poorly written, and, and it should be changed. And that, when it comes right. to her, you think, whoa, okay, why? Right, and so women think that they have rights over their body, that Roe v. Wade granted them. They think that they have these rights, which are now being stripped. But there never was—it's it, a faulty premise. And so, you know, if you, if you really—and one of the other things, Bill, is that when Justice Blackman wrote the opinion— he wrote that um, he had two scholars. I just really uh, just recently learned about this, and it was fascinating to me anyway, that he consulted with some legal scholars as to, well, how have we practiced abortion? You know, is it, is it true that it used to be legal in the 1800s? You know, they used to, used to be able to see ads in old historical newspapers that you could buy, you know, patent medicines or potions or even poisons to bring about an abortion. And they would put it in language that is still being used by the abortion industry today that would be restoring a period. Isn't that a nice trick, Bill? Whoa. You're restoring a period. You're not taking a human life. You're restoring a period. And so um, so they, they said, you know, it was, if anything, it was treated as a misdemeanor, and nobody cared about early abortions until quickening. Well, this, you're talking about 1830. There was no ultrasound. Right. There was no means by which physicians or anybody else understood fetal development the way that we do today. And quickening happens around five months. And it's when the first time a mother can feel a baby move. And so we'll try to prove that, you know, did you feel the baby move? Well, I know your honor. I did not. OK, go and send no more. <laughs> you know, it was it was a completely unscientific measure. But even at that you know, many, many, many states outlawed abortion after quickening. This notion that it was widely accepted, widely practiced, always has been all through time, is simply not true. And I'll tell you why, Bill. The church has always stood against abortion. 
And again, this red herring that the Bible is silent is is just not true. It's incorrect. And don't ever fall for that. Mm-hmm. You know, we have the, there are some extra biblical sources that we can look to. And yes, they're not, you know, they're not canon. But if you look at the Didache, it was expressly and explicitly prohibited. And the thing about the early Christian church is that they were rescuing children who were vulnerable to infanticide and child sacrifice. The Bible has everything to say about Molech and prohibiting child sacrifice. Mm-hmm. Right? And so there's it really it really parallels our practice of abortion today, particularly those who would advocate for it as birth control. You know, where they just want a woman to not be pregnant or they want to give her the right to say she can do it for any reason at any time. Uh, I'm 100% pro-life, so I'm not in favor of exceptions. But to say that the church has always all been neutral on it, or we've had nothing to say, and it was illegal, these things are just false. And there's a book that's out of print now that I'm trying to find. I guess you can find it in the cloud, but it's by a law professor from Villanova, and he revised that history and wrote about how, you know, this this red herring that nobody cared about abortion and women, and now you just care because you're trying to impose your religion. He corrected all of that by very meticulous research. And again, he's, his last name is Della Pena, and mm-hmm. I think, uh, I can't remember the name of the volume, but anyway, um, there are many scholars working on writing that. But, you know, one of my frustrations, Bill, is trying to find you just, you know, Google abortion laws in 19th century America. You should be able to just find some historic documents, right? No. What comes up are the talking points from all of these people who are trying to keep abortion legal. And and it's just talking point after talking point. Just, just give me the history and let me make a decision. Mm-hmm. You have to scroll to page four of the results to find a renowned legal scholar and professor of the law from Villanova and what he had to say about it versus Politico's fact check or whoever else, the, you know, the thought police are right now. It's mm-hmm. very, very frustrating to me to even try to find good information. Yeah, no doubt. Kim Katola is my guest and I'm on her Twitter, her Twitter page right now and looking at a picture of her with her beautiful mother, Vera. She's lovely, Kim. Is that you and your sister? <laughs> yes, my sister's graduating from kindergarten, and Mom was She's giving got, me a big hug. <laughs> She's got the cap and gown on kin- kindergarten. That's crazy. All right. I got a question already for you from a listener. We'll address that and more when we come back. Kim Katola again, is my guest. And she is not only an amazing radio person, and who's been in the radio business forever, but she's the author of Cradle My Heart, Finding God's Love After Abortion. She also is the host of Cradle My Heart Radio on Faith Talk 1360 in Phoenix. Be right back. Katola is my special guest. She's nice enough to be on the show talking about all things pro-life, which we are all 
in favor of as well, Kim. Here is a question that came in. Uh, let's see here. I uh, had it just a second ago. Uh, what is the best thing to do for the wellness of my post-abortive wife? She can't seem to heal 30 years later. Hmm. This is a really common problem, and I'm really blessed that a husband would show his concern by submitting the question, Bill. The problem is there's no avenue for mourning. When a loved one dies, we have mourning rituals. People expect you to be sad, and they try to comfort you. People have uh, a ceremony, whether a funeral or a memorial and a burial, and none of these tangible steps are present when someone is mourning after an abortion. And so the mourning becomes complicated, and it's very difficult then to resolve it. And I think, you know, I experienced this, Bill, after my abortion. I attached to my grief. I memorialized the pain, and I did not want to let that pain go because it was the only thing in my life that represented the fact that I had been a mother to that child. And, of course, that's very unhealthy, and you don't want to continue in that, and there is a better way. You can go to, um, well, on my website at cradlemyheart.org, I have a resource page that offers all kinds of modalities, so whether it's a weekend retreat or a 9- to 12-week Bible study or personal one-on-one, virtual or in-person, there are many, many ways that lots and lots of organizations are reaching out to women and, and having real results so that they can find real peace, give honor and dignity to our children lost in abortion. They will be upheld in their grief, but they won't be, um, but that grief will no longer be prolonged. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's so painful to hear that question asked, but thank you for that wonderful um, answer to that question. Uh, Kim, let me ask you this. Another question. I'm curious as to how we can get legislatures to make adoption more accessible. It seems to me that many states have very strict adoption laws that seem to play into supporting the abortion industry. Are there any thoughts on that? You know, I hope that adoption doesn't become the next battleground because, you know, there are others who who sense that adoption is made more difficult because of pro-life pregnancy centers. And of course, that's not true. Um, There's no profit motive in any pregnancy center anyway. They're all, you know, supported by donors and nonprofit organizations. And I would say that support your local pregnancy center because many of the ones, and particularly the ones that are larger, are interacting with adoption agencies and interacting with legislative action as well, because, you know, if they're, if they're going to encourage women to not abort, to carry for a pregnancy forward, they have to have answers for those women for whom, you know, parenting is simply not appropriate. Maybe she's underage or maybe there are other barriers where she can't parent, but she does want to give birth. And so I, I, that's what I would say. I would say, you know, get involved with your local pregnancy help center, pregnancy help organization, and um, let them give you a direction because they always need volunteers and they are very much on top of the issues as they stand, you know, on a week-by-week basis. Mm-hmm. Another question, Kim, if Roe versus Wade is rightly overturned, will it further the political divide and push the country towards civil war? It might. You know, I I have kind of a flip answer, Bill, and I'm not sure that I should even utter it. <laughs> but, you know, um, 
women taking to the streets to demand their rights is one thing. But are there enough I mean, are there is it a is it really a broad enough movement to bring about a civil war? I almost sense that it is. I sense that there's a very vocal, very um, organized, very politically connected and well-funded minority who have been forcing this issue for the last 50 years. I think if it comes down to uh, boots on the ground, I just don't think most Americans are there. Mm -hmm. And, And, you know, Elizabeth Warren screamed about that the day of the leak. You know, most Americans want. No, she's incorrect. That's fake news. It's just not true. Uh, Most Americans are in the middle somewhere. Most Americans still, Bill, remain blissfully ignorant about what abortion is and what it does to the lives of the children who are killed by it and what it does in the aftermath of the women who experience it. As your first caller, you know, your first question so beautifully illustrates it's not a nothing in the lives of women who undergo it and experience it. It can be a lifelong grief. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that I don't, I don't see a civil war coming. I think that, you know, in some really important ways, abortion is bullying. Women went to the Supreme court and secured the right to have an abortion at the expense of the rights of unborn human beings Embryology teaches us, Bill, 20 textbooks agree that conception begins uh, the human life. From conception forward, the fetus, the zygote, the blastocyte, then the zygote, then the fetus, is a distinct, living, whole human being. There's no question medically when human life begins. And yet, the Supreme Court granted the right to take those lives to women. They granted the right to take the lives of fathers. No man has any legal standing in the life of his child before his or her birth as a result of Roe v. Wade. And so women crying about their lack of rights have yet to address those two injustices. And, I, you know, I think that if enough people start to understand just exactly the power play that a legal abortion is, I don't think, I don't think we'd, they would stand a chance if there were any kind of a war over it. I was looking at some of the statistics, and the pregnancy resulting from an incestuous relationship was 0.001%. So mm-hmm. obviously the most horrific thing, uh, if a woman is uh, raped or incestuously uh, impregnated, it seems that those stats are really, really small. And then you hear the women's physical health is threatened by the pregnancy, and to be honest, Kim, I can't think in the last 35 years when I heard a story of a woman saying, if they didn't take my baby, I was going to die. Do you know many right. of those stories? No, I've heard many physicians say, many obstetricians say there is no such case. Okay, that's if so interesting. It, I mean, if it's late in pregnancy, they'll try to save the child if there's a life-threatening condition. Right. right? You don't kill the child because there's, there's a problem. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I would frame the incest and rape question just a little bit differently, having spoken with Rebecca Kiesling. She'd be a great guest for you to have on, Bill. She has an organization called Save the One, and she, she was conceived in rape. And she once said to me, and this was one of the most bracing things, and it really persuaded me that exceptions for rape are not just. She said, I was born in 1971. Prior to Roe, my mother was gang raped. 
my birth mother. And she said, I was not born because I was wanted. I was born because the law protected me. Wow. Oh, wow. That just gave me goosebumps. It's pretty hard to argue, isn't it? And I talked with Rebecca recently, and she said, you know what? The 1% represents, you know, every year 10,000 babies. Mm -hmm. Which of those individual babies isn't worth more than any other baby because they happen to be part of a 1% group? Yeah, she's she's like we need to retire that <laughs> that stat, but but I think it's it's a it's an instructive stat, Bill, because Norma McCorvey, attorney at the Supreme Court, argued that Norma needed that abortion because she had been raped, but it wasn't true. Mm-hmm. It plays on sympathies, and of course, rape is a horrible crime and incest doubly horrible uh, because of the betrayals involved, but. If we're going to kill someone, shouldn't it be the perpetrator? Shouldn't it be the rapist? If it's a capital crime, shouldn't it be a capital crime for the for the criminal? I mean, mm-hmm. women deserve all of the support mm-hmm. and all of the care that we can give them, every social service and every bit of justice. But it is not just to kill the children because of the sins of the father. Yeah. Kim, thank you for um, coming on the show today. It's been great having you. Oh, I love it, Bill. You can call me anytime. I will indeed. Thank you so much. Kim Catola has been my guest. You can go to uh, Kim Catola at her Twitter feed. And also her book is Cradle My Heart, Finding God's Love After Abortion. We'll take a short break. And when we come back, Janita Pace is going to join me. Her book is called The Healing Name of Jesus. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.